again. So the first time it happened was after a dental procedure. Um, I was still in the dentist office. I ended up being taken by ambulance to the hospital. They scanned me for stroke um, because I, they were like, she had like some kind of seizure. She was dry heaving, then she stopped breathing and look at her now, she's, you know, she has no movement at, at all. So they, they did stroke assessment. My CT was clean and within about 36 hours, um, I had regained the strength in both sides of my body and everything was unilateral. Um, that happened again, actually I was inpatient and there was a lot of overstimulation in the room where I was actually talking to the doctor. And it was really strange because that time I got extremely dizzy. Well, I guess every time I do get extremely dizzy. And the strange thing is the world doesn't turn like this, it turns like this. And so I always slant us go to my right. I always slump over to my right. It's always been started. It always initially starts with my right side. And the doctor was like, what the heck is going on? You know, he's like, are you breathing? And so I was actually taken from that hospital to another hospital in an ambulance for a stroke assessment. Again, it was clean. So they were like, well, you seem to have atypical migraines that cause hemiparalysis. But then those started occurring more and more frequently. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of the podcast, Medical Error Interviews. At the end of part one of my interview with Sarah Price Hancock, she had become dizzy, but managed to get to the floor safely. Once the gravitational pressure on her brainstem was relieved by being horizontal, the change in the clarity of her voice was astounding. I caught up with Sarah a few weeks later to pick up where we had left off. And in part two, we talk about Sarah's experiences living with ECT brain, like learning how to read and comprehend again. Sarah shares some of the treatments she's tried to varying degrees of success, and how she managed to achieve her master's degree in rehab counseling in spite and because of her medical care experiences. Sarah also talks about her experiences of bilateral hemiplegia, a frightening condition where one side of the body becomes very weak and paralyzed. For Sarah, it is always the right side, and she will have a great difficulty walking, talking, and breathing. Sarah tells about some of these weird stroke-like responses her body has to things in our environment, like mold, barometric pressure changes, or foods with residual alcohol. Sarah also shares about some of the treatments that have had a positive effect on her symptoms, and by extension, her quality of life. She tells about MacGyvering, a grounding bracelet that has helped dampen some symptoms, and about the time the cold laser therapy on her brainstem brought instant symptom relief. Sarah also tells us about the weird science interaction during acupuncture 
when all of her neurological symptoms disappeared until she put her cell phone up to her head. It is truly frightening that shock treatment, also known as electroconvulsive therapy or ECT, is not standardized. It is like the Wild West with different doctors using different protocols and, surprise, surprise, getting different results. Sometimes good, sometimes devastating, like in Sarah's case. That is why Sarah has started an international petition to make ECT safer. One final note. When I started recording the interview, Sarah had just gone from being sitting up and vertical to laying down and being horizontal. Listen to how Sarah's voice becomes more clear as we get further into our chat. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, and all of the podcast platforms. Please also think about leaving a kind comment. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. Do you need a counselor to deal with your own experiences of medical error or living with chronic illness or LGBT issues or any of life's challenges? You can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now here's part two of my interview with Sarah Price Hancock and a note of caution that some people may be triggered by Sarah's experiences with the healthcare system. So the last time I saw you, you uh, had just had to lie down on the floor because you got so dizzy. And yes. uh, one of the most not noticeable effects was how your voice changed. And I got to hear what I assume is, is your real voice, your non-impacted uh, voice. Yes. So, uh, Presumably you got up off the floor and what else has happened since then? I know in an email you mentioned barometric pressure. Oh yes. When we, when I got up off the floor, um, I, it takes a quite a while for whatever is going on to calm down. Um, and the longer I stay in a reclined position, the more I'm able to sit up later or stand later. Um, we're not really sure what's going on specifically in me, but the research uh, into electrical injury um, and repetitive electrical injury, as is the case in uh, shock treatments, is that the focal point of the electricity is on the brainstem, which is kind of strange because the brainstem does not really participate in the emotional regulation that they're trying to address with shock treatments. But the focal point of the electricity is on the brainstem, the anterior of the frontal lobes. Oh, I was picturing the electricity ECT devices on people's temples from the pictures I saw in the 60s. Yeah, and that's where the electrodes are placed. If it's bilateral, the electrodes are placed here. And when it's bilateral, those electrical forces go through the brain and converge on a very specific place in the anterior of the frontal lobes and the brainstem area. And they've discovered that the most damage is caused along the current course. They've also discovered that electrical injury causes diffuse electrical injury because electricity does not travel in a single linear course. You'll see all those fans coming out of electricity and those also cause um, damage. And so the more treatments a person has, the more damage they're likely to have, not only just in the specific cor current, you know, 
road. <laughs> Sorry, I'm losing my words here. Pathway. But also those fingers of electricity that come out because it's not just a linear path of charge. So the research shows that the focal point of the electrical uh, charge is placed squarely on the brainstem. And um, it's interesting because even looking at uh, research on electrical injury in general, people who even have electricity going through their hand or their foot or another part of their body, it actually does impact the brainstem. We have to keep in mind that our central nervous system was designed to conduct electricity. And so anytime we're exposed to electricity, that electrical current is going to travel the path of our central nervous system. It's not going to be condensed to one specific location. So a uh, slight aside here, are yeah. you sensitive to electrical uh, machines and devices? That's a very interesting question. And um, I would say yes. Um, I had the most bizarre experience. Um, I recently, in my journey of trying to find alternative methods of treatment, I began working with a doctor who uses acupuncture. And um, he is extremely gifted. Um, but the interesting thing is he actually, I guess in acupuncture, they create a circuit sometimes. They'll put the needles in and then they'll connect one side of your body to the other side of your body to get everything flowing, I guess. And so, um, when he connected it, my symptoms actually completely subsided. And both of us were like, wow. And it was weird because the static humming that I feel in my body just completely went away. And he's like, I've never seen that happen before. Because even my, my changes in my speech and stuff that impact more on one side than the other, um, just completely resolved so we were like well that's fascinating and then my phone rang so he handed me my phone and when the phone got close to me all of the symptoms reappeared and then when i finished the conversation he took the phone away from me and they resolved again so his eyes about popped out of his head and i was just like this is weird. This is like weird science. Like I just, there's so much we don't understand about the body's electrical current and response. Um, so yes, I, I do, that has happened and I have, um, just because it was such a dramatic change, I have at times used like the EMF protection and and those kinds of things. I do a lot of grounding actually, um, which has actually helped my sleep significantly, which I found interesting. And it also helps take away that static feeling, which I think is really bizarrely interesting. But I think that that's all stuff that should be looked into when dealing with someone who has a history of electrical injury. I've heard of the term grounding before, but uh, I don't know what it means. So grounding is where you are literally grounded to the earth. Um, and they did an interesting study um, in cardiac patients who uh, were having difficulty with like arrhythmias and problems um, with cortisol and sleep patterns and whatnot. And so what they did was they, they took these people and they grounded them for eight hours a day, if I understood correctly. They basically slept grounded, which means that there, there is an electrical or a wire of some kind that is either taken outside and grounded like you would um, if you were creating a 
like if you didn't want to get shocked when you're when you're doing a computer fixing or something of that nature you're just basically taking this extra electricity and making sure that it's going back into the ground rather than disrupting your body so the native americans are very aware of and use grounding a lot um in fact i read a story once of uh man who visited his grandma on the reservation and she demanded that he take his shoes off when he was with her because they're quote going to kill you because she was recognizing that the earth somehow rejuvenates the body during you know when it's connected there's there's electrical forces that we don't understand entirely but the interesting thing is that controlled trial that they did with grounding in cardiac patients, they every four hours tested their cortisol levels using a spit test, if I remember the research correctly. And over a period of, I think it was, I forget the numbers exactly, but it was several weeks. And having them sleep grounded, they actually re-regulated their a cortisol natural balance uh, and ebbs and flows and they also uh, improved their sleep patterns and also improved their heart uh, problems and so that was actually a controlled clinical trial so after reading that you know I'm very research-based and so I was like well I couldn't hurt you know <laughs> because <laughs> it's so benign you know you think about it it's just you're you're taking you're literally grounding yourself like you would for fixing a computer um so that means like going barefoot in the grass or or grounding using actual equipment um and i actually have felt a difference when i've done it um i have improved my sleep i have um even improved some of my most annoying symptoms so it's just kind of it was funny because i was actually at this alternative health clinic this one day and i was sitting using grounding equipment and this woman comes in and she's like i've got this emf you know gadget that will measure how much emf you have and you need to buy my product and you can protect yourself and uh, she was going around to everyone, and sure enough, this thing was lighting up, um, demonstrating that these people had EMF, and I was like, yeah, right, you know, because I'm just, I'm, this is so fringe, right? And so um, then she came over to me, so she's trying to get me to buy her thing, and she puts it on me, and she's like, it didn't light up. And she's like, well, that's weird. I've never seen that happen before. But she didn't realize I was sitting there completely grounded. And so it was really funny. I was like, well, maybe it's not working because I'm grounded right now. And she looked at me and she, because I had created basically exactly what you'd use if you were in, you know, with the grounding bracelet, you can get them for like three bucks on Amazon that they use when they're um, fixing computers. And then I'd put it into a grounded uh, socket. Um, my electrical engineering friend taught me how to do this. I didn't figure this out on my own. Um, so, but it was just kind of fascinating because there are forces at play that, in so many ways, that if we address all of them, we can alter, you know, and improve our health. Well, that's fascinating. Like you say, especially your experience with uh, the electrodes being hooked up. That's, yeah, that was really weird. Is that something, so the, my first immediate thought was, well, how do I get this all the time? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I do a lot of grounding. Um, so I got a little bracelet on Amazon um, that you would use like for, uh, what's it called for fixing computers. And um, what it has is it has a, a Velcro bracelet and then it has a wire that attaches to an alligator clip. 
And then what my friend had me do was he had me get a power surger that has a light on it that indicates when it's grounded. Um, so that when you plug it in, you know whether or not that plug is grounded. And then um, this is something I would advise doing with someone who understands electricity. Do not take my advice on this. Make sure you're working with someone because electricity, let's be frank, is very powerful and we don't want to make any, cause any problems. But this engineer friend uh, put, when the plug was unplugged, he put a uh, metal screw, a number 20 wood screw into the bottom third prong of a grounded electrical outlet. The bottom third prong evidently is what automatically grounds things. So it takes back the extra electricity that's put out through plugs and puts it right back into the earth. And so he, that's what he did. He put the, the electrical, he put the, the metal screw into that grounding hole and then he attached the alligator clip to that pin or that, that screw. And so I sleep with that bracelet on. Um, actually, I've forgotten to do that because my memory is bad. But I, so I haven't done it the last couple nights. But I do regularly do it. That's the cheap man's way. I mean, there's things you can buy online that are like $100 to $300 to help you ground with like copper wiring. And if you, you know, if you have a, a thing outside, you can put it in the ground. But it's not really practical for those of us that don't want wires you know going through our house and or our apartment or you know whatever but most everyone has grounded electrical sockets and you can get the grounded power strip with the light to make sure that it's grounded um, and do it that way okay well there's a helpful hint <clears throat> yeah. uh, the barometric pressure. I, I know that term, but I'm not really sure what barometric pressure is. Well, barometric pressure is what changes our weather. So in general, when there's like a rapid change in weather, um, for example, a low barometric pressure is generally when a storm is coming in um, and the faster the barometric pressure drops, the faster the storm is coming or the more severe the storm. Um, and my husband's cousin did a fascinating video where, you know, in high school, his son was doing this project um, where he was demonstrating the power of vacuums. And so he got this mason jar with a complete seal and he had a air compressor. And so he put attached the air compressor to the, the lid through a hole, sealed it all off. And he had this balloon inside that had just a little bit of air in it with, and it was tied. So then what he did was he pulled the pressure out of the mason jar, essentially demonstrating a drop in barometric pressure. And when he removed the pressure out of this jar, the air inside the balloon had more pressure. And so the balloon began to blow up. And the more air he drew out, the larger the balloon became, even though the balloon was tied in a knot. And then to reverse it, he would just let the air go back in and the balloon would collapse. So I don't understand migraines, but I do know that whenever there is a radical drop in barometric pressure, and we're talking like just hundredths of a, of a measurement. We're not talking like, you know, big ones. We're talking 10 and a hundredths measure. Uh, but anyway, it's a radical drop in barometric pressure. I get the most intense tension pressure headaches. It feels like my head is an Instapot coming to boil or coming to pressure. And so when he showed me his little science project, I was like, oh my gosh, maybe I have some kind of something in my head that's expanding when these rapid drops of barometric pressure occur. So I have problems going into the mountains, not only because of all of the visual stimuli of the movement of everything going past me in the car, 
but also because my body has difficulty regulating pressure. We went to up in the mountains with my kids um, and they had a, a summer storm and um, initially I was okay, but then I started having problems with the alternating hemiplegia. Um, I have those problems during sudden storms. Um, so there's just a lot of things that are weird that we don't understand, but there is science out there that explains it. And we just need to un better understand the mechanism of action. Wow, your body is a mess. My body's so messed up, dude. <laughs> Sorry, that's my Southern California uh, stuff coming out. But yeah, I, I actually sent all of this information on electrical injury to a NIH researcher that I've been working with. Um, he's the one who got me on the serine and the ATP. Um, because that's kind of where the evidence is going for people who've been exposed to electrical injury and people who've been exposed to toxicity issues. Um, they're noticing that when they have these delayed onset of symptoms, they, they actually have, you know, low plasma levels of serine and they have low plasma levels of like ethylalamine, which are amino acids. So he, he was looking at it from that direction, but he'd never looked at the research on electrical injury. He was looking specifically at uh, plasma levels of you know, amino acids and toxicity and such. So when I sent him this annotated bibliography on electrical injury, and he starts reading the neuropathology of you know, electrical injury. He's like, I could not understand why you weren't getting better when we were doing these other things. I mean, you improved significantly, but we couldn't get you past the hump. And then you've continued to deteriorate. He said, but now I'm looking at the neuropathology reports and gliosis, microhemorrhaging, myelin sheath ballooning and myelin sheath damage and brainstem injury, cranial nerve damage. There's really you know, these are the things that I can't address. I, I don't know how to address. Um, so we're still like trying to figure out, you know, but he's a brainiac. And so I've been very blessed to connect with some exceptional researchers. Um, I connected with Dr. Philip Yar Yarnell, who is in Denver. He's a neurologist that specializes in electrical injury. And he said, you need to get your doctor to order a 3T MRI, which is a three Tesla MRI with, with SWI sequencing, DTI sequencing, and even MRA sequencing. Because I guess those can identify microhemorrhaging, they can identify how the brain is actually functioning. And I actually was just also referred for an MEG um, because that can look at electrical activity within the brain and not just on the surface of the brain. One of the problems with brainstem injury is that it can cause these really bizarre symptoms that are so broad and so varied um, that research or doctors look at it as a conversion disorder because they really they they can't understand why these symptoms are all over the place and so the one research was saying you know if you do evoked potential testing brainstem evoked potential testing you can recreate all of these problems that these people are having which indicates that it's not a conversion disorder it's actually seizure type activity in the brainstem. And that's often, it's not captured on a standard EEG because it's, you're looking at primarily the surface of the brain. So when you do evoked potential testing where they overstimulate you visually, they overstimulate you auditorially, they overstimulate the sensors, um, then you see the explosion of these problems indicating cranial nerve damage in various cranial nerves 
indicating, you know, brainstem injury and, and, and causing some pretty dramatic problems. So it's really critical that people with a history of electrical injury, whether it's touching, you know, the toaster with a fork or, you know, whatever, uh, it's important to understand that electrical, the laws governing electricity and exposure to human tissue do not change based on benevolent intent. So just because a doctor gave you electricity doesn't mean that it alters the laws of electricity and human tissue. Um, so making sure people get the brainstorm, brainstem evoked potential testing, make sure they get, you know, also you can, you were talking last time about the cranial uh, cervical, cervical instability. instability. Yeah. And that makes complete sense. And my doctor is actually now looking into that because electrical injury also causes atrophy in the muscles and tendons, uh, especially in the immediate location. And a lot of people who've had shock treatments, um, actually later develop bulgar type symptoms um so it's it affects our neck and our speech and our swallowing and and so you know when i do lay down i am much more clear of thought um and so we're looking at uh getting me properly diagnosed to see you know if the cci really is an issue and it's so dramatic uh when i lay down um, that there really can't be any question, especially knowing that the neuropathology and the animal studies talks about how electrical injury actually causes compressing of the brainstem. Because it's, you know, the body is brought to a seizure response using roughly 100 joules of electricity, which is the electrical force of about 73 pounds. So that's pushing all at once against your entire body and the brain, you know, it sloshes back and forth. So you're pushing it, pushing it, pushing it in these pulses. Then those pulses are like, you know, alternating pulses. They're the same kind of pulses they use to kill cancer cells. So there's just a lot of factors involved that Quite frankly, science is compartmentalizing and not recognizing how it's impacting the people that are receiving it. Mm -hmm. Another slight aside while I'm thinking of it, <clears throat> I've been following the research and development of a device called, the acronym's PONS, P-O-N-S, I'll send you the link, Portable mm -hmm. Neurostimulator. And when you mentioned yeah. the cranial nerve, uh, they did a study yeah. on folks with MS who have gait problems mm -hmm. and by placing this neurostimulator on their tongue for a certain period of time it improved their gait mm -hmm. i'll send you that link in case it's helpful it's it's really just fascinating because in my own experience i used cold lasers for a while radically improved things but it also stimulated my central nervous system and i the more i used the lasers the better I got for a period of time, and then it triggered a worsening. And the better, you know, so then I'd use the cold laser again, I would get better, and then I would get worse. So, you know, how much stimulation can the central nervous system and brain get before it just short circuits? So these new things that they're coming out with that are stimulating like the trigeminal nerve or you know, for migraines or stimulating all of these different nerves, you know, the truth of the matter is our body doesn't know how to interpret these pulses that the, that these manufacturers are giving us. So we don't know if it's triggering, you know, especially when you're talking about facial nerves and cranial nerves, you know, yes, it might work right now, but how long will it work? And how long is too much, you know, kind of like any kind of brace we use. We, we don't want to overuse it because then whatever we're bracing is going to atrophy and lose the capacity to conduct itself on its own. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just, I think we're getting into areas that are not yet fully understood because they don't understand 
delayed electrical injury. There's a lot of research out there, but the majority of the people are looking for immediate results. And when those show up, they're like, yes, we got it. And they're not recognizing that delayed electrical injury is a very real phenomenon, well-documented throughout literature, and quite frankly, devastating for many people because it is directly connected to motor neuron disease. And motor neuron disease is devastating. You mentioned, uh, I think the term was cold laser therapy? Yes. Cold is that laser. also known as um, l light laser, infrared? Red? Yes, yes. Okay, I yes. also used that early on uh, in ME because I was reading a book about um, neuroplasticity and they profiled yeah. their researcher, Dr. Fred Kahn, who had mm -hmm. a an injury from, I think, tennis or something. And for two years, he was a surgeon. For two years, he couldn't get this injury corrected. He was in a lot of pain. I saw various professionals and uh, I think an East German or a Russian uh, physiotherapist said, well, you can try my laser therapy machine. It's used a lot in Eastern Europe and in Russia, lots of research on it. And Dr. Fred Kahn used it. And within two weeks, he was back playing tennis. And he did his own research and gave up his surgery profession and went into pain management. And so yeah. when I was reading about it, it was saying that it um, normalized cellular activity, increased ATP, and decreased inflammation. And I thought, that's going to help me, maybe. So yeah. I went and, and I had treatments on my brain stem. Mm -hmm. And it took me from being very severe to where I am now, which is sort of mildly impacted. Yeah. I mean, it's really, really exciting what they can do with cold lasers. And I have witnessed, in my own life, dramatic results. Um, I, I know that they use it in, in uh, brain injury um, and in spinal cord injury. Um, and I've seen dramatic results. I just want to caution people because delayed electrical injury is a real thing. And so we don't understand it entirely, but we need to recognize that we can only create these dramatic results so long. I think for me, because I have ex repetitive electrical injury, um, my results are probably not only more dramatic, but less long term. Um, so like I'll get instant relief of symptoms. Like I accidentally ate something that had some residual alcohol in it. Um, my body can't process sugar alcohol. So like, um, any of the alcohols created, uh, from sugar, the artificial sweeteners or whatnot, my body can't process them. So I, I, I wanted to try something. So I did, I tried it. And within 10 minutes, I had this full on problem where I couldn't speak, I couldn't walk, I was, I had brain problems that were so funky, like dizzy and feeling uh, difficulty communicating and whatnot. Um, and my brother was in town and he, he had actually the one who offered me a fork of good stuff it, and it was tasty um, but immediately he took me over to the chiropractor that does the cold lasers and the chiropractor was working on someone else but he saw that I was having problems breathing he saw that I was having problems with all of it you know the speech the everything and he walked right over with his large cold laser you know they use it in NASA and they also it is made in Russia um, and he put it right on my brainstem and instantly it resolved. My problems resolved. So I cannot, I cannot, uh, deny, uh, the use of cold lasers, but I can caution, be, use caution because too much of a good thing is not a good thing. 
Um, and so it's very critical that we keep that in mind, you know, just because it works now doesn't mean it's going to work five years from now and doesn't mean it's going to not cause problems five years from now. So it's just, just use caution, just be wise in what you're doing to your body, what you're using, you know, listen to your intuition, study as much as you can, learn as much as you can. I believe there's cultures and medical paradigms throughout the entire world that have things that we can learn from. Um, but we have to keep everything in context because the more puzzle pieces we can put together, the better outcomes we can have. Um, but we cannot deny some of the research that's out there saying, yes, but, yes, but. Keep this in context. We need to keep this in context. Mm -hmm. I can attest to uh, trying to find that Goldilocks zone of using it enough, but not too much. Because when I first got it and I improved so much within the first few days, I thought, well, if an hour a day does this, two hours a day is going to, you know, make me even better than I before I got sick. And yeah, yeah it, it just tipped me right over and it was the overstimulation. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I used it for quite a long time. And um, and when I stopped using it, I didn't decline any. So I, it sort of had a permanent effect, but not a curing effect. But I wanted to, because I was looking at some of the pics you sent me. And so I have some questions. I don't have quite clear in my head the timeline of the last time you had the shock treatment. And then it was seven and a half years before you had the onset of the neurological symptoms. And yeah. then how long ago was that? Because that sounds like when your speech and your walking ability were impacted. Yeah, I did have a couple episodes. So I, I quit shock treatments against medical advice in uh, June of 2009. Um, in 2010, uh, now we're getting into autobiographical memory. So my autobiographical memory is pretty bad. I had a, my first experience in 2010 with these symptoms. It was immediate onset of hemiplegia. And I have like spasms, phrenic nerve type spasms where initially it looks like dry heaving. Um, but there's no nausea involved. And then it becomes diaphragmic paralysis. Um, I also had random hiccups that don't go away for hours at a time, but that's a different thing. Um, but there's some kind of neurological weirdness that was going on. And the first time I experienced it was in 2010. So it was less than a year after I had quit shock treatments. And then fast forward another three years in 2013, um, it happened again. So the first time it happened was after a dental procedure. Um, I was still in the dentist office. I ended up being taken uh, by ambulance to the hospital. They scanned me for stroke um, because I, they are like, she had like some kind of seizure. She was dry heaving, then she stopped breathing and look at her now. She's, you know, she has no movement at, at all. So they, they did a stroke assessment. My CT was clean. Um, and within about 36 hours, um, I had regained the strength in both sides of my body and everything was unilateral again. And they couldn't, they were like, well, maybe it was a TIA, you know, like a mini stroke, but that wasn't showing either because TIAs come and go pretty rapidly. Um, and you can see uh, where there's been an injury. Um, and in my case, the CT scan was completely clean. Um, that happened again. Actually, I was inpatient later uh, for a different uh, problem. And there was a lot of overstimulation in the room where I was actually talking to the doctor. And it was really strange because that time I got extremely dizzy. Well, I guess every time I do get extremely dizzy. And the strange thing is the world doesn't turn like this. It turns like this. And so I always slant, uh, go to my right 
I always slump over to my right. It's always been started. It always initially starts with my right side. Um, and the doctor was like, what the heck is going on? You know, he's like, are you breathing? And so I was actually taken from that hospital to another hospital in an ambulance for a stroke assessment. Um, and again, it was clean. So they were like, well, you seem to have atypical migraines that cause hemiparalysis. And I was like, okay, you know, that's twice. So both times it was clean, both times, you know, there's no damage indicated on a CT scan. Um, but then those started occurring more and more frequently. Um, and so, and then, so that was 2010 was the first time, 2013 was the second time, 2017, um, I was exposed to mold, um, lots of mold, because I was working in a building that had a history of a leaky roof and being flooded. Um, and within about 18 months of, or yeah, in, within about 18 months of working in that building, I was just messed up. I lost my ability to walk. I lost, you know, all of this. And so we didn't understand that it was mold related. So finally we had to, you know, do the mold avoidance where you go, you know, East County as far from the beach as possible and hang out in the desert for long periods of time. Or, you know, the things that the people who have understanding of mold do and guess whose symptoms started improving. So I, I really think it was, a, it's a cumulative effect in my case. It's not one singular um, problem. You know, I, I really believe that there's toxicity issues from my underlying condition, which was hepatic encephalopathy. Then they compounded the encephalopathy by giving me psychiatric medications, which my body could not metabolize. And so I started having a lot of medication metabolite pooling. So I had, my brain was baking, marinating in ammonia um, and all of the alcohols that were related to the hepatic encephalopathy. Then they wanted to fix that using electricity um, repeatedly. And um, they actually, uh, Dr. Bennett Amalu uh, just spoke um, at a board meeting I was at um, for the state of California's Department of Rehabilitation talking about brain injury. And he reiterated that electrical injury is a functional injury and that repetitive electrical injury um, is a different kind of electrical injury or a different kind of repetitive head injury, but very similar in some of the effects of uh, these functional injuries that we see in, in football players that develop these motor neuron problems, that develop these dementia problems and the Parkinsonianism type things and just just a, a wide smattering of things. And you know, he said the neuropathology is clear. Um, it does create the gliosis. It does create the myelin sheath ballooning. It does create the microhemorrhaging. And these are not typically seen on the standard scan, you have to use very fine sequencing. And even then, they're still discovering the sequencing that they need to use to be able to identify these repetitive head injuries and electrical injuries, repetitive electrical injuries. So we're kind of on the cutting edge of understanding how we can quantify the problems that people with my history experience um, because the symptoms I experience are very common in people uh, with a history of shock treatment. And part of that is because shock treatment is not standardized, it's not regulated. Um, and so there's more than seven variables involved in its actual administration. And so there's an outcome dichotomy among the people who've had it. There are people who swear it saved their lives and people who have literally died. Um, as a direct result of it. Um, so there, we really need to, that's part of the reason why I created that petition 
um, because for any medical practice, you need to have fidelity measures. You need to have standard operating procedures because that's the only way a doctor is going to be able to replicate results in a published article. One of the strange things I was noticing in the ECT research is that they never replicate their electrode placement and seizure threshold and you know, all of these things that you would think are standard, you know, variables that you need to try again so you can get results um, that are the same as what you're getting. So it's hard because the doctors give these informed consent and say, you know, only 2% of people have permanent memory loss, and but they're quoting an article that had a very specific methodology in its administration and the doctor's not necessarily using the same administration technique. When the manufacturer comes out and lists the seven admin variables as variables associated with permanent brain damage, permanent memory loss, you know, that's when you realize this is a major red flag. Maybe we need to do something to prioritize patient safety and like actually standardize this so that we're not exposing people to undue risks. So that's why I created the petition because the public doesn't know that it was never safety tested and there are no standards in administration technique. So when they hear these really awesome, amazing stories about people's lives changing for the better and getting saved and they're, they're better than they've ever been and they've been able to go back to school and get, go back to full-time work and I mean, I'm not denying those stories. I'm sure they exist. I actually know three people who feel that it really sincerely helped them. But because it's not regulated or standardized, you have to still remember that all of these success stories and all of the negative stories are merely antidotal experiences until the procedure is standardized. They cannot be replicated. Yeah, it, uh, it was shocking to find out that shock treatment is not regulated, not standardized when you told me that. Yeah, that was quite shocking. So during this period of time, and then when you hit the, the moldy building where you're working in, and that tipped you over the edge yeah. in terms of neurological symptoms, uh, I, I think you said that you got your master's, but I'm not sure in what. And one of the pictures you sent says you were teaching emotional re reliance. Emotional self-reliance. Yeah. So I have a podcast. Um, and now that I know that I can speak more clearly laying down, I should probably work on getting back into podcasting. Um, but I, um, I worked really hard to get my excessive technology in place, to get neuropsych testing so that I could get academic accommodations. Um, and I went back uh, a year and a half after shock, um, and I was admitted into an internationally recognized rehabilitation counseling program. They looked at my lived experience and my grades in my undergraduate um, and placed a larger priority or larger weight on that over my GRE testing, because um, I tested in the bottom third percentile for my GRE scores, which was a vast difference from the 3.9 GPA that I had in undergrad. And um, for folks who aren't familiar, what does GRE stand for? That's the standard test that they have you take for getting into graduate school. And so, um, most graduate programs, quality graduate programs require them, uh, require that test. Um, so my, the person who interviewed me was like, you know, you have a lot of skills and you have a history of academia, you know, success. So I'm not going to have us look too closely at the graduate test, the graduate entrance exam essentially, um, because I think that using uh, appropriate accommodations we'd be able to help you be successful and um, that's Dr. Sachs, Dr. Karen Sachs. Um, 
I was very blessed being able to get into San Diego State's rehab counseling program because the faculty there worked very closely with me. The students there used me on a lot of their projects. Um, so they did, they did assessments on me to know what kind of assistive technology I should use. They drew up reports so I could take it to the Department of Rehabilitation and say, these are the assistive technology things that we recommend and this is the research behind why we recommend it. I, I learned about neuroplasticity and some things I could do to improve my memory. I learned about, you know, alternative text and learning how to read again because essentially ECT made it so that I couldn't, I could read a line, but I couldn't remember what I just read or even which line I just read to know which line I needed to read next. And so I learned about, you know, listening to audio while the words are being highlighted on the screen. So you learn to track what you're reading, you learn you're hearing it and you're reading it out loud. Um, so there was a lot of rehabilitation involved that I personally was able to do that most shock treatment patients don't yet have access to. So I'm working on developing rehabilitation protocols for them so that they can have the same access to these life enhancing treatments and, and rehabilitation protocols that I've been blessed to be ex exposed to. I can read now, I can read and retain information now, I can, um, my working memory has improved. A lot of the things that we typically see in people with my history of shock um, have improved substantially. Um, now the problem is, you know, I was able to graduate with my degree. I worked as a rehab or as a research assistant and then as a graduate assistant. And then they were so impressed with my work that they invited me back to teach, even though I didn't have a doctorate. So I co-taught uh, and co-developed curriculum for psychiatric rehabilitation, KCREP, you know, cert accredited curriculum at a university um, to help develop rehabilitation for people with psychiatric diagnoses. Um, it was just a phenomenal experience. I taught for four years at San Diego State. Um, with Dr. Marge Olney and the rest of the fantastic faculty there. Um, and we created really a recovery-based practical solutions uh, for a psychiatric rehabilitation. Um, and then they also, California brought about a new licensure, the Licensed Professional Clinical Counseling. And so we were able to uh, create a clinical track for um, our rehabilitation counselors if they choose to get into like professional counseling as a mental health counselor. Um, so they, the San Diego State program has the licensed professional clinical counseling track in addition to a rehabilitation counseling. Um, and then with all of these exposures and the onset of the delayed electrical injury, I was forced into early retirement. And um, it was hard because I, I love teaching. I love watching that light turn on in my students' eyes. I love, I love creating challenging curriculum that makes them look at things from multiple perspectives instead of just one singular perspective so that they can create their own opinions on what they believe will help people in my situation. I loved being able to challenge the notion that people who experience psychosis, people who experience these rapid mood changes and problems, that they can recover and that they can get back quality of life. They can work full time if they choose to and if they have the correct supports, they can have a full life. But the problem is there's so much mindset out there against people with brain injury, people who have psychiatric diagnoses, and there's just this assumption that we can't do it. We aren't up to the task. When in reality, you can't judge a fish by how well it climbs a tree. And so if you give 
you know, the appropriate assessments, if you give the appropriate augmentive technology, the augmentive support, if you believe, if you believe in your clients and help them believe in themselves, they're going to take their life far in directions that will be astounding. And so I think helping people recognize their own potential, helping people break through the learned helplessness and seeing that there are options out there, there are things they can do to enhance their life. There are things that can be done. Just keep learning as much as you can because there's so much out there that maybe this pocket of people understands or this pocket of people understands, but if we all bring it all together, we can create these amazing programs that really enhance the quality of life and reduce harm. And so, yeah, sorry, I went off on this total tangent, but. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it was very meaningful to you and a great loss for you. Yeah, I mean, whenever I sit up now, probably 80% of the time my dysarthria is so profound, it's very difficult to understand me. So much so that I've had to start using um, speech to speech relay services. I was just assessed for um, text to speech uh, therapy because I get in to the community where I have to be seated upright or standing um, and my ability to stand is deteriorating. My ability to sit upright is deteriorating. But the exciting thing is I have these universities where I have a very strong history of being invited yearly for this is this the nurse practitioner program psychiatric nurse practitioner program is inviting me back for the ninth year and they said you know if you want me to do the presentation i will either need to be laying down via zoom or i will be giving it like stephen hawking's and they said sarah your presentations are so profound and they impact our students so much that we don't care if you're going to give it via Zoom laying down or if you're going to give it in an automated text because our students need to hear what you have to say. And it just means the world to me that I still have these opportunities that people are recognizing lived experience and education and the knowledge that that people get is very valuable. And I think meek, meek doctors are willing to take what they understand and know and integrate what their patients are experiencing and create even better outcomes. And so gratefully, there are good doctors out there. There are good educators out there who are encouraging their students to go forward and integrate patient experience in trying to better understand you know, the practical outcomes of this research that's out there. Uh, one quick thing while I'm thinking of it, uh, for folks who aren't gonna see the show notes where I'll include the links to your websites and social media and stuff, what is the name of your website? My website is psychrecoveryandrehabilitation.com. So that's P-S-Y-C-H, recovery, A-N-D, rehab.com. So psych, recovery, and rehab.com. Okay. So there was two things. That was one of them. And now I've forgotten the second one. because <laughs> That's okay. Oh, my podcast. Um, I, if you enjoy listening to podcasts like this exceptional one, um, I do a podcast on emotional self-reliance that was uh, temporarily suspended um, because I was having such speech issues and cognitive issues, remembering how to edit and whatnot. There's 10 episodes and it walks through the basics of beginning to create emotional self-reliance um, and autonomy and independence. Um, it, it would really be good for anyone who's been in a situation where they've just been slammed again and again and again in ways that they begin to believe that they are no longer in power of their life. Um, it helps 
people kind of take back that power. So um, hopefully my experiences can help other people. I'm sure there's immense value in uh, what you do. And what's the name of your podcast again? It's called Emotional Self-Reliance. You can find it on iTunes, on Podbean, um, Google Podcasts, basically your favorite podcast provider. Well, Sarah, it has been edifying, frightening, compelling, gratifying, inspiring to talk to you. I get to talk to a lot of really incredible people with really incredible stories and uh, you're another one of those people. So thank you for taking the time and the energy to share. You bet. Thank you so much. And thank you for helping people get aware of the importance of getting this treatment regulated and standardized. Um, we need more signatures on that petition. I wrote it as an international petition that is being sent to all uh, English-speaking countries of any, any other languages. If you have someone who's interested in helping me translate it so it can be used in other countries, I have people who are sharing this in their own countries um, that are non-English speaking. So it's, it's something that needs to be spoken of and discussed in a public forum. And I'm so grateful that you gave me that opportunity. Oh, thank you for sharing and uh, edifying all of us about ECT and the, uh, the risks involved and the permanent impacts that it can have. One of the things I love about doing this podcast is the remarkable and inspirational people I get to meet. I learn so much about how people survive and thrive when faced with life-altering medical errors. We have much to learn from people like Sarah, not only on how to deal with the medical system seemingly bent on denying accountability or improving patient safety, but how to deal with our own grief from the loss of our healthy lives and hopes when it's due to the error of others. A big thanks for Sarah for sharing her experiences and for the advocacy work she does. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and other major podcast platforms. Please leave a kind message. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a premium monthly patron of the podcast. And if you're dealing with your own experiences of medical error or living with complex chronic illness or LGBT issues or any of life's challenges, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others.